Hi, my name is Annie Grossman, and I'm a dog trainer. This podcast is brought to you by School for the Dogs, a Manhattan-based facility I own and operate along with some of the city's finest dog trainers. During this podcast, we'll be answering your questions, geeking out on animal behavior, discussing pet trends, and interviewing industry experts. Welcome to School for the Dogs podcast. I am here with the wonderful, peerless M. Beaupre. M. came to us as an apprentice, what was it, gosh, four years ago? That was... Yeah, I think it was 2016. I'm 20, pretty sure. 2017, 2016. Yeah. 2017. Gosh, that is almost four years ago. It's all my years in New York um, are kind of just a big blur that involves a lot of dogs. So it's hard for me to pick dogs. <laughs> well, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now um, as far as School for the Dogs goes, and then we can maybe work backwards in time and talk about uh, how you got to this point. Yeah. So right now I'm my, uh, I have a couple of capacities with school for the dogs. I am an associate trainer with school for the dogs. So I am seeing clients. I'm doing so exclusively virtually because surprise, surprise, I am currently living in Portland, Oregon. So I am school for the dogs. I believe first fully remote trainer, <laughs> um, fully yeah. remote by necessity yeah. trainer. To be clear, we would like to have you be doing actual sessions in Portland, but because of because lockdown. of the pandemic, right? The eventual plan is for me to actually get some sessions on the ground and uh, be able to do some more one-on-one training, which is great. Portland's got a lovely dog training community, um, and I'm hoping to get more involved in it once it's safe to do so. Um, and then school for the dogs will be officially by coastal. Yeah, we're going to do school for the dogs west. <laughs> west. Um, um, but then also I am. Uh, as a former member of the apprenticeship program, I have also taken on the job of managing the School for the Dogs apprenticeship program, which I did for the first time um, at the beginning of this year and has been uh, extremely educational for me and a really interesting experience. Um, prior to that, I was doing some other program management, but this is the first time that I really had kind of a, a team of students um, and we have had a fantastic team of apprentices this year. So it's been really a pleasure to see them learn and grow. Um, and How would you describe the, the School for the Dogs apprenticeship program to those who don't know about it? So the apprenticeship program is a program that's tailored towards people who want to. It's basically any for anybody who wants to learn more about reinforcement-based animal training. It doesn't even necessarily have to be for dogs. It's for anybody who's got an interest in the science of animal training, the way that we do things at School for the Dogs. Um, it's a six-month program. It's uh, intended to be done both remotely and on-site, depending on where people are located. This was the first year that we had to do it completely remotely because, of course, our apprentice class came in right at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, but we've done, I say this as somebody who helped to work on it, we've done, I think, a very good job of adjusting the program to be something that can map to the fully remote format. Um, we've been able to get a lot of really good experience for our apprentices on board. Our training team collaborates very closely with the apprenticeship program. So our apprentices are able to shadow trainers at their remote sessions. They're able to remotely sit in on classes. They're able to even help co-teach in some circumstances in remote sessions, which has been really good. Um, and at this point, I mean, I'm 
I'm a huge proponent of virtual learning for everybody, not just dog trainers and those who need them, um, but for everybody. And I'm pretty excited that we're starting to really tailor this apprenticeship program to be something that can be done by anybody all over the world. Um, so that's my yeah. brief summary there. I'm excited too, because like, well, from the beginning, we kind of wanted there to be a standalone online component and uh, and a free standalone on- online component that was always part of the idea. And I feel like the uh, one upside of, you know, mass, mass mayhem and <laughs> pandemic in general right. has been that it's pushed us to kind of like finally get that together. And we're doing it, man. We are doing it. We're we are making I, dog training we, accessible to anybody who needs to train their dog or who anybody for anybody who yeah. wants to train anybody's dog, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, so maybe by the time actually this episode is up, it will actually be available, this like dream project that you and I have been <laughs> We've been working very working hard for... to make this into something that's accessible to the whole world. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it is accessible to everybody, but I think it's really the the born to behave, that, which is the online component that's could be done remotely and um, and could be done um, uh, separate from the rest of the apprenticeship, which which is going to involve more like hands on stuff. I mean, it's really for people who are either wanting to become professional dog trainers or are just like completely super nerdy about it I would say right like it's not definitely (laughs) like I I don't think I don't think your average dog owner would necessarily want to dig into it and probably not a a little bit more yeah it's definitely tailored for uh people who as you put it either have an interest in entering dog training as a career or just happen to be fascinated by the science of dog training um or both which is great obviously um I actually fell into the latter category which is why it's kind of fun that I ended up becoming a trainer because when I entered into the program, I didn't really necessarily think that I wanted to be a trainer professionally. I just knew that I wanted to learn more about what I had been already doing for a long time. And I wanted to learn new techniques. I wanted to learn more about why the things worked that I knew worked. I knew a lot of the how, but I didn't know a lot of the why. And the program was instrumental in giving me a better perspective on why these techniques work, why they're the best ones for our purposes, how to effectively teach them to clients and friends and other human beings in general, um, how to propagate them basically, and how to make training into something that is so much more mutually beneficial for dogs and humans than in my prior experience it had been. I came from a very, um, very old school training background uh, and it was definitely enlightening to me to start using some of these techniques and just see how much different the training experience was uh, when I was. Well, so that's a that's a a good segue. Let's let's hear about your your history your history working with dogs because you used to show dogs when you were a kid, right? Sure did. Yep. <laughs> so how did you get, how did you get into doing that? Was it like something your family did, it was, or was it uh, just like a person? 
it was not. It was um, basically the the prevailing consensus in my family is that I was just kind of born obsessed with dogs. Nobody really knows quite why. But there are <laughs> photographs of me when I was younger than I can remember, like a tiny baby just reaching for dogs and attempting to get closer to dogs. Um, I have a bit of a theory that it's like because you're you're the youngest of two, right? Yeah. T- tell me if you think this theory like holds up. I think it has to do with like being. I think often the youngest or, or the, the youngest kid is the one who's interested in dogs because it's like they need a buddy and they need something to care for. It's, I think that that might have something to do with it. For me, it was also so I was a homeschooled kid. I didn't uh, and I was raised in a pretty rural area, so I didn't have a lot of interaction with other kids. I had my sibling, but I didn't really have a lot of kid friends around. But what I did have was animals. Everybody in our family had mm-hmm. dogs and cats, and so it was always dogs and cats, and it was a, a bit more natural, I think, for me to interact with the dogs and cats than it was to go try to seek out other school friends, since I didn't really have a frame of reference for what school even was at that point. I was just very confused that all these other kids seemed to go off somewhere for several hours a day, and I didn't quite, why wouldn't wow. I just stay at home? Were you whole homeschooled um, all the way through? I was. I didn't go to school until I went to university when I was 17. Wow. Yeah, I'm a, that I'm would have been like a, my dream. <laughs> it, it was a wild ride. I got to tell you, if you've never been in a classroom and then your first experience is in like a college classroom of 200 plus people, that is that's flooding for you right there. <laughs> was it your when well, I have to explain what flooding is to people who don't know what flooding is. Ah, uh, yes. Um, that's uh, flooding is when you have a stimulus that you present at full force to a learner. So it might be something that's potentially alarming to them or potentially triggering to them, but you don't bother to set it at a, an intensity that they can deal with. You just go, here it is in all of its glory. Here is a college classroom. There are 200 people here. You've never been in a classroom before, but this is it. Go for it. And uh, that was definitely a, a pretty alarming experience for me. I do not recommend was it your, for training. <laughs> was it your choice to be homeschooled? Um, or was it, it your parents? No, or? I mean, obviously. Did I was, your parents do the schooling? They did. Yeah. Um, when I was little, obviously, you don't, you know, you're not five years old and going, I've made a conscious decision to be homeschooled. Um, but certainly by the time I got to be a little bit older, I did not have any interest really in attending. I went to theater school, so there was that. Um, but theater school mm-hmm. is not so much about the classrooms. Uh, but uh, it was it was definitely more of a, once I realized what was happening and what the difference was between my educational schema and that of other children my age, I was pretty comfortable with the, the setup that I had. <laughs> Sounded a lot better mm-hmm. than going to high school, put it that way. Did you manage to like still make friends and have like a social life? I theater school was very helpful for that. And actually, so was dog showing. Um, So I got into, I started officially where, I mean, I say officially because by the time I was four, I was already trying to train every dog that would come within five feet of me. Um, But I think I started officially volunteering at the local shelter when I was 10, which is hilarious. They actually let 10 year olds volunteer. This is what rural counties can do for you. Um, But I was able to go and just basically my job was, you know, go into the kennel, take the dog out to the dog run, throw a ball for them a few times, bring them back into the kennel. It was a very, uh, it was a high kill shelter. So it was pretty much, I would come once a week and most of the dogs that I saw one week were not there the next week. And it was probably not because they had been adopted. Um, Mm. But I was very... I just liked being able to interact with the dogs and give them kind of some some sort of bright spot in their day. 
And it was very interesting, even as a kid, to see that when the volunteers who were there on the regular would come into the kennel area, the dog's body language would change completely. You would not have those frantic barking, spinning, or those anxious hiding behaviors that you would see when kind of members of the general public would come in because the dogs would recognize the people that they had seen every week. And they would come right up to the front of their kennels and they would sit and there would be loose bodies and wiggly bodies and wagging tails and big happy facial expressions. And I think that was the first tip off to me that you could do, you could make connections for dogs even when you weren't really trying to do it. Um, So that was very interesting uh, as a 10 year old. And then from there, uh, I don't even really necessarily remember how it happened, but I remember that I got involved with a fellow, somebody in my, uh, one of my theater cohorts who was involved in 4-H. My family did not care for 4-H, so they didn't really want me to do 4-H, but I begged and begged and begged. And eventually I was allowed to go to this person who did 4-H, also went to a confirmation handling class at a local training school. So I was allowed to go to that handling class and they said, all right, you can go and you can watch. And if you decide that it's something that you want to do, then we'll figure out some way that you can do it. That's not 4-H. So I went and of course, you know, it's a room full of dogs who are being touched by people. And I'm just sitting there like, this is the, I'm about to live the dream. I'm going to definitely be touching a lot of dogs. And that's really what I need <laughs> to do with my life. Um, and so we ended up uh, getting in contact with a breeder of American Pitbull Terriers who was in Southwest Washington. And she was also a coach who trained junior handlers for confirmation handling. So she would usually have uh, an apprentice or two at any given time of ages ranging from about five to about 15. Um, I think at the time that I got in touch with her, I was 12 or 13. And she just said, all right, great. You know, you're going to work my dogs. I've got some dogs that I need to show. I've got dogs that I want you to train. I've got, you know, people who also need handlers for their dogs. And I ended up just being connected with this person. And by networking with them, I ended up working with a whole bunch of other breeders in the area. Um, And I showed American Pitbull Terriers. I showed Dobermans. I showed a pug named Pop-Tart, which is probably the best (laughs) name for a pug that there's ever been. Um, (laughs) And I showed a whole bunch of different breeds. I also started attending a class in a different area in Washington where I would basically just go and be the, the the dummy handler for people who were brand new to showing their dogs. The person who taught the class would just go, all right, you're not doing it right. And you need to come up here and show them what to do with the dog, uh, which was pretty <laughs> funny because I was a, a gangly teenager. And uh, but just about the only thing I could do with any degree of accuracy was show a dog. <laughs> um, what what made your you and your folks decide on um, an American Pitbull Terrier? It was the partially it was because I um, so I remembered a little bit of the flow of it, which was that I was I used to obsessively go to dog shows because I just wanted to stare at dogs all day and talk to people about dogs all day. And so I went to this one dog show. And at the time, my favorite breed which is still one of my all-time favorite breeds, is Doberman Pinscher. And so there was a a Doberman breeder who was local to the Portland-Vancouver area. And I had been saving up the courage to talk to her for a very long time. Finally, I went and I was like, I really want to talk to you about, like, do you need a junior? Do you need an apprentice? And she, she said she didn't need anybody, but she knew somebody who did. And that was the APBT breeder. Um, and my family definitely had a moment when I was like, I'm going to show pit bulls. They were like, are you going to die? 
And I was like, no, <laughs> I'm not going to because they don't, they're not going to kill me. I promise. Um, and they, it was a, they are a fascinating breed to work with as a trainer. And looking back on it, I think it's just so cool that there is a reason that some people refer to pit bulls as nanny dogs because they really do have a mm-hmm. level of patience that's reserved for small children. <laughs> mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Even though I wasn't small, small, I was, you know, middle school aged. I mean, the stupid things that I was able to get away with with those poor dogs, like, I was very clumsy. I did not do things properly. And I have so many vivid memories of the dogs who I was taught on just being so patient and just kind of standing there and being like, all right, we'll wait. It's fine. Go ahead. Take your time. We know that you, <laughs> you know, this is only your 1000th time of doing this. We would have thought you might have gotten better at it by now, but no judgment. Just, just go ahead. So showing dogs and confirmation, like, Tell tell me more about exactly what that is. Like, how would you explain that to like someone who's coming from a t- totally different planet? Yeah, I mean, I could tell you like my guesses about what it's what that world involves. But I well, what would your guesses hear. be? I'd be interested to hear them. Um, so I've always thought of confirmation. Well, I guess I before I ever thought about it very deeply. You know, I was familiar with like Westminster and Crofts and. Um, you know, the the sort of best in breed. Mm-hmm. And there was that movie like 20 years ago. Best right? in show, yes. Best in show. Best in show. So I am here to tell you, as somebody who showed dogs for close to 20 years, I am here to tell you that Best in Show is not a mockumentary. It is, in fact, a documentary. I have met <laughs> one of those people, and it is real. The whole thing is real. Now, now I guess I think of it as kind of like, it's like this weird eugenics parade where it's like we're trying to and correct me if I'm wrong and if I sound like overly judgmental I'm also willing to be told that but it seems to me like confirmation is like there's this specific idea of like what a dog should look like that is kind of arbitrary but based on something that's in a book somewhere about you know the, the the ideal basset hound should be this length and have ears that are like this and a yeah and, you know a temperament that is like this and we're going to try and find the basset hound that is closest to this arbitrary but um standardized standard so um, you're basically yeah. yeah you're basically on the right track there's when it comes to confirmation so when we judge dogs in confirmation what we're comparing each dog against is the breed standard this is the big thing about like you know oh well it's best in show in westminster how do you just like did the judge just decide that the poodle is prettier than the doberman how did we decide that the poodle wins over the doberman poodles and dobermans don't look anything alike how can we say this dog is better than this dog What's, what happens in confirmation is that you're judging every single dog against the standard for that breed. And so the only uh-huh. thing I think your evaluation is pretty spot on. The only thing that's that I would adjust is it's not arbitrary per se, because it's based around the original function for the breed. But uh-huh. the trouble is, the trouble that arises in purebred dog worlds is when we exaggerate certain characteristics. So this is what happened with dogs like bulldogs, for example. We originally bred bulldogs for the completely barbarous and wonderfully not existent anymore sport of bull baiting, which involved biting onto a bull and hanging onto the bull for as long as it took to bring it down, essentially. And a feature that they wanted to breed into the breed was a facial shape that would allow the dog to breathe without letting go. 
So they wanted that flattened mm -hmm. face. They wanted the, the nares to be in a different place on the face than they would be for a dog who had a more pointed snout. That's how you ended up mm -hmm. with a flatter faced dog. That being said, we don't do bull baiting anymore. And even if we did, the bulldogs that we have nowadays would not be able physically to do that sport because what we decided somewhere along the way is that that squishy face and the big jowls and the stocky body was really cute. And so we wanted to see more and more of it and more and more and more. And so we end up changing the standards a little bit in the current day to match more of an aesthetic rather than a function. So it's interesting because there's also a little bit of different breed clubs have different perspectives on the way that they want to tailor the breed standard. And I'm actually, uh, I am hoping that we are trending in this direction, which is it seems to be the case that a lot of breed clubs are trending in the direction of adjusting standards to match function a little bit better. So we're doing things like, oh, we'd actually prefer these French Bulldogs to have a little bit longer legs and a little bit longer snouts because that's healthier for them. Or, oh, we would prefer, you know, this Border Collie, we're going to prioritize their working ability over what color their coat is because it's more important that they're able to work a flock of geese than it is that they're black and white. And this, when it comes to purebred dogs, the attention to aesthetic really can't come at the expense of function, in my personal opinion. Um, and I understand absolutely the draw of a purebred dog. I've had purebred dogs myself in the past, and I understand the draw of, I want a dog that I can pretty much predict what it's going to look like. I can have a pretty good idea of what its temperament's going to be. I can have a pretty good idea of what's going on with it and what its motivations are likely to be. I can have sort of a, a bit more of a solid frame of reference. I can definitely understand that. But the trouble for me arises when we do select specifically for those physical characteristics, um, which is the unfortunate. But what about dogs like, like that were like the purpose that they were originally bred for was to like sit on someone's lap? Like, Aha, that's how you end up. Yes, exactly. Like companion and toy dogs. So these are, uh, mm -hmm. I actually had a client uh, just a few days ago with whom I was speaking about this, which is anytime that you're working with a purebred dog, one of the things that is kind of on the, in the back of your head is what was the original function that this dog was bred for? In the case of something like a toy breed or a companion breed, their function was just to hang out with people all the time. So mm -hmm. it's not terribly surprising that dogs of these breeds occasionally have things like separation difficulty or some challenges disengaging from their people. Their whole motivation for being themselves is, I will use uh, as an example, a friend of mine has a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. A Cavalier King Charles Spaniel is the consummate companion dog. The Cavalier King Charles was bred to do nothing other than be your best buddy all the time. And that was a great choice for the royalty of the time. But nowadays, those of us who have Cavalier King Charles Spaniels have to leave them alone sometimes. And they're not necessarily going to tolerate that quite as well as a dog who was bred to be completely independent of human beings and not really interact with them at all. So mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. is an, a very interesting feature because something like the feature of being a companion can be a very strongly instilled trait in a dog, just as much as the instinct to point in a pointer or an instinct to flush for a spaniel. The instinct to snuggle is a very strong instinct for a Cavalier Ching Charles Spaniel. Mm -hmm. That's what they were bred to do. So as a trainer... Sorry, when it, people... oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say as a trainer, um, it's important for me personally, especially if I'm working with dogs who are purebred, who come from, you know, my clients will say, oh, they came from a breeder. They, you know, these are the bloodlines, et cetera, et cetera. It's important to me to acknowledge what the original function of the breed was because I 
typically find that it's going to color the behavior of the dog and the dog's motivations in some way. So for example, my toy breed dog the other day, we use snuggling as a reinforcer for that dog because she will work to get it. She will work to snuggle with her person. A lot of dogs are not mm -hmm. super thrilled about a lot of physical touch. This particular dog, she really would like to be held and carried. That is her favorite thing. So if we know that that's Aww. something that she really enjoys and something that she'll work for, we can use that for training. And we can teach her polite behaviors like sitting to say please instead of jumping on my legs when she wants to get picked up. Or, you know, being quiet on her mat for 10 minutes before she gets to come onto the couch or something like that. So as someone who's had a lot of, um, well, actually, what, what kind of, different question, what kind of skills did you need to develop in order to show dogs? Did you, oh, and did you have to wear the kinds of outfits and run in the kind of way that they oh, do? Totally <laughs> did. Well, the funny <laughs> thing is, so you, those, uh, those of you who are listening at home don't necessarily know what I look like. I'm very tall. I'm very <laughs> long limbed. I'm a bit awkward looking to put it politely. Um, oh, stop it. And so one of the, but one of the great features of being me when I was a kid is because I have very long limbs, I worked really well with tall dogs because it looked very dramatic. If I would move a dog around the space, like a Great Dane or a Greyhound or a Bourgeois or something like a really big leggy dog, I could really move a dog with a lot of speed and it looked very cool. Um, so one of the things that I had <laughs> to learn was how to, the basic mechanics of showing a dog are similar for most dogs. You have, for example, the stack, which is what anybody who has seen Westminster knows what that is, where you pick up the legs and you put them into the straight little up and down alignments. Um, so every dog is going to be stacked in roughly a similar way. There are certain breeds that are a little bit different, though, and there are some breeds that need to be stacked on a table and some breeds that are stacked on the ground. And you have to be very careful about making sure that your body doesn't block the dog from the judge. You always want the dog between yourself and the judge because you want the dog to be the point of focus, not you. The point of a, a successful handler is that the judge doesn't even notice that you're there. They're entirely focused on your dog because you're doing such a good mm -hmm. job of presenting your dog. Um, one of the things that I found was because I was a handler, so I showed a lot of dogs. I didn't have a dog of my own. I just showed dogs for other people. And when I was showing different dogs, different dogs had different levels of enthusiasm for the sport of dog showing. I had dogs who uh -huh. loved being shown. They would go into the ring with their head up and their tail up, and they would be just completely ready to rock it. And they would run around that ring like it was the best time of their lives. And for dogs Aww. like that, the biggest concern was, even if you don't win, it has to be a really good experience for the dog. Because you could demoralize mm -hmm. a dog. They can tell when you win or don't win. They can tell when their so? handler is. I feel like, it, I don't know that they, you know, I don't believe that they would think of it in terms of winning, but they can certainly read the body language of the handler. And for a handler, mm -hmm. a win is a completely different type of body language than a loss, right? If you win, you're like, woohoo, you're throwing your hands in the air, you're having a great time. If you lose, you just kind of muscle up and you bring your dog out of the ring and, and you're done. And it would, for some dogs, that's a depressing experience, it almost seemed like. They would obviously lose enthusiasm for going into the ring if they didn't get that big reinforcement of throwing a party for them at the end. So one of the things that I had to learn was to always throw a party for my dog, even if we didn't necessarily win. Uh, I would try to act Aww. like we won um, because that made my dog <laughs> more excited to go into the ring again. It's a similar methodology to how in 
the style of training that we do, we always try to end a training session on a high note because we always want the mm-hmm. dog to be excited to train again. So we never want to end a training session with this feeling of, oh, well, you know, you didn't do your best, but I guess we'll try again tomorrow. That's going to be potentially less exciting to your learner than if you go, oh, my gosh, that was amazing. All right, we're going to wrap it up for today. I can't wait to do this again tomorrow because you're amazing. Um, So the takeaway is you always want your dog to feel like a winner. You always want your dog to feel like a winner. No matter what you're doing with your dog, no matter how you're feeling, you want your dog to feel like a winner. Uh, how do you so feel about stuff, um, yeah. how do you feel about mixed breed dogs like the fantastic? The, I mean, I, I'm guessing I'm guessing you've had a couple doodle clients. <laughs> I've two. had a couple, maybe just a few, right? <laughs> I've heard of that breed <laughs> because I I think that like in the pure world of pure breeds, like doodles are very much looked down upon. The high no. any of the hybrid dogs tend to have a bit of a bad rap in the the purebred dog world, and it's you know in the purebred dog world there is a relatively intense amount of noses in the air for one reason or the other, uh, which is not to say that there are not also amazing uh, experiences in the purebred dog world. One of my best. Uh, And this actually applies to hybrid dogs as well. So when I say a hybrid dog, what I mean is a breed like a doodle, so a breed that doesn't have recognition in any given kennel club that's been around for a slightly shorter period of time um, and that doesn't have, I think that the, if if I recall correctly, the technical definition is a stud book. I don't think there's a stud book for doodles, but maybe there is. I could be wrong. You can't see me right now, but I'm staring faintly off into space thinking if I should is a stud book like where you can look stud up book is yeah stud? it's a register of um breeding stock so oh, usually if you have a stud book okay. then you have foundational studs for the breed so that tells you mm-hmm. these are the sires that help to create the breed um this is really important mm-hmm. for things like tracking genetic disease uh we want to make sure mm-hmm. that if something crops up several generations down the line that we can go back and figure out where it came from um mm-hmm. so so I think as I have absolutely no beef with any breed or mix or hybrid of any type of dog because I just really like dogs. And I started <laughs> liking dogs well before I knew that there was such a thing as a breed of dog. Um, my well, biggest sure, uh, my biggest thing with any dog, regardless of whether it's a doodle or, you know, your purebred AKC, UKC, dual registered standard poodle or your delightful curly dog who came from the local rescue in Brooklyn uh, is knowing why you chose the dog that you did is going to be very important to any person with a new dog. So Mm -hmm. I think that one of the first questions that a lot of us trainers ask in session is why did you choose this particular breed? And it's never intended to be something like, why on earth would you choose this? But it's more something like what led you to choose this? What led you to choose this breed? What were your motivations for it? Because when we choose a particular type of dog, it's usually because we want a particular function for that dog. So if I choose something like a doodle, the reason that I choose a doodle might be because I want an active dog. I want a dog who wants to play with me. I want a dog who's interested in having a, a fun athletic time on in the East River Park. Or it might be because I want a snuggly dog because I know that they're companion dogs and that they want to spend a lot of time with their people. And that's important for me. Or it might be something like, I think they look cute and silly. And I want a cute, silly looking dog. It makes me happy to have that type of dog in my home. But Mm -hmm. I think that I don't have any, I've got no beef against any type of dog. 
I think that they're all wonderful. And I think that there is a place in somebody's home for every type of dog. That being said, I myself could never have a doodle because I am pathologically terrified of wet beards on dogs. <laughs> You're funny. They completely, they just do me in. And every, every bearded dog I've ever worked with has just a fixation with drinking a whole bunch of water and then bringing their wet beard over to me and putting their wet beard <laughs> on my leg. And it's just, I've experienced it too many times to count and I can't do it anymore. Well, my, my feeling about, you know, doodles is they serve a function. The function is they're, I mean, at least the ones who are bred to have good temperaments can be around kids and and be kept in apartments and they don't shed. Yeah, exactly. People appreciate and they're, you know, they're game to be active, but they're also game to sleep in and yeah. um, they're like relatively low maintenance and... Um, and, and I, that's I think, that function again. That's that selecting yeah. for what you know that you want in the dog that's going to share your house. If those are qualities that you want in the dog that's going to share your house, then a doodle is going to fit the bill. And all dogs, all breeds began as mixes of a couple other breeds or a couple other dogs. Like, like all the all. I, I think from from what I've read about breeds, you know, most of the breeds that we recognize today as breeds. I've really only been around for like 100, 200 right. years. Tops. Usually it's, yeah, 100 years is, I, I believe, if I'm recalling correctly, 100 years is about the median for how long most breeds have been around. Um, Which is not that long. It's not that long. It sure isn't. Um, and of course, as you put it, every breed started as a mix, right? There's no such thing as a yeah. breed that didn't start as a mix. Every dog came about as a combination between two other dogs who themselves came about as combinations of two other dogs and so on and so forth. So all that happened is that at some point we noticed things that we particularly liked about this batch of puppies. And we decided, oh, maybe I should breed that puppy with this other puppy to see if I can get them just a bit taller or just a bit curlier or just a bit happier. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. was how we ended up developing all these breeds. I could probably do an entire hour-long podcast just about how much I love dog breeds and how interesting I find them. <laughs> I'm, I'm low-key obsessed with dog breeds. Not dog breeding, well, but dog breeds. Um, I'm, I'm interested in dog breeds, too. I remember, actually, um, like, after I, I did Karen Pryor Academy, but before I was, like, training full-time, I was working doing um, – I was working for Animal Planet as an associate producer on their show Too Cute, Puppies and Kittens. And I remember like shortly before going into that thinking like, I don't really know enough about dog breeds. Like I couldn't really like identify dog breeds. And I remember thinking like, it's a hole in my knowledge. Maybe I should like get a book and really study it or something. And I I never, have, I, this is such a great, I, I'm sorry, I have to be self-effacing here and tell you yeah. one of the most weird things. I mean, there's so many weird things I did when I was younger, but one of the specifically relevant weird things is that I had, so I obsessively collected dog books. I still do. Um, but when I was a kid, it was every birthday and Christmas, I needed dog breed books specifically. Books that <laughs> oh, dogs. really? Like on different yeah. breeds? Different, like books about, so it, they had to be the books that had the big like listing of dog breeds and they had different pictures of every dog breed because what yeah. I needed to do with those books was I needed to give them to my parents and have my parents cover up the name of the dog breed and then ask me what type of dog it was. So I basically so forced cute. my parents to quiz me about dog breeds. Like 
every day as though it were going to get me into college or something like no it's time for dog breed quiz let's do it really adorable (laughs) the only the only tangible benefit as an adult that this uh, exercise has ever had is there was one time when I was at a pub quiz in Manhattan and there was a round (laughs) that was all dog breeds and I completely cleared the round and I got a free beer (laughs) that's funny so well I, I I remember having this thought of like there's this whole in my my knowledge that I need to like like work on and then and and then I didn't like specifically work on it but um working on too cute I learned a lot about dog breeds and then um you know obviously uh working as a dog trainer all these years I've learned a lot about dog breeds I mean I feel like I still have a lot to know but I feel like I could probably hold my own in a pub quiz if I if I I'd be a good partner pug quiz Oh. Um, so, so little M homeschooled alone. <laughs> yes, that is. A and uh, and then you went to college and studied German. I studied linguistics right? uh, and German. Linguistics. Yeah. yeah, I was double major linguistics and German. You dub, go dogs. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And then and then when when I met you, which I know there was like some years between um, you finishing your, your, uh, your official academic schooling and, uh, doing schooling with school for the dogs, but you were working, um, as a vet, a vet tech and you had your own dog walking business. I did. I, how did did you get to that point? So, uh, I moved to New York in, let's see here. Um, I guess that might've been 2014. Uh, and I, at the, before I left the West coast, which is where I'm from originally, uh, I had been working as a vet tech and for about three years by that time. So when I moved to New York, I took a job as a vet tech in New York city. Um, veterinary technology is incredible. And I still, I consider myself a semi-retired vet tech at this point because I don't Really. Did you did you get it like an official education? No, I am not. Tech? No, I am not licensed. I am I am not an LVT. I'm not a CVT. Um, when I say vet tech, I really mean more veterinary assistant. Um, it's right. just if you depending on the practice, you'll have a little bit of interesting divisions of responsibilities. But what I really was was more of a veterinary assistant. Um, mm-hmm. So I did not study it formally at all. Um, I began as a receptionist and was moved up a bit into clinics because I was interested in moving up and because I was able to build the skills that I needed to. Um, and, uh, so when I moved to New York city, I, the, one of the most easy jobs for me to get and the one that made the most sense was as a vet assistant. So I did that, um, for about a, a little over a year during which time I realized that vet technology was, a, it's a pretty stressful field. Um, it's, it's a nursing field. It's a medical field. Um, it's just a, animal nurse instead of a human nurse and so there's a lot of uh, baggage that comes along with it it's very difficult and I have immense respect for those who have done the job for a lot longer than I have Um, but uh, I decided that I wanted to start my own business because I saw a need in my neighborhood uh, which I was living in the East Village at the time and I saw a need for dog walkers and pet sitters who had a little bit stronger of a grasp of behavior and a little bit stronger of a grasp of kind of biology and physiology than a lot of the currently used services did. Um, And so I decided that I wanted to start my own business, which was serving 
exclusively the East Village and Lower East Side parts of Lower Manhattan. I called it Lower East Beast because I thought I was hilarious. Um, and I still think I'm hilarious all the time. I think it's uh, an awesome name. It's a fantastic name. Thank you, Annie. Um, that's like every now and then I feel like I haven't accomplished a lot in my life. And then I remember I came up with the name Lower East Beast and that was a great oh, name. Oh, stop. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I came up with Lower East Beast. I started that company. I was able to establish a really pretty robust client base with really nothing more than word of mouth advertising just because the East Village is a very dense area. And it turns out that people really love their pets and they want somebody who's taking care of their pets, who loves their pets as much as they do. Uh, my tagline for my business used to be, I'm your pet's second best friend, uh, indicating that you, of course, are your pet's best friend, but I'm going to be second best and I'm happy to be second best. Uh, and I had a fantastic experience. I met so many wonderful clients. And one of the things that I noticed when I was doing this work is that in Manhattan, in that really dense urban environment, there were so many dogs and cats who struggled with urban anxiety and with difficulties that were specific for that inner city kind of setting. There were a lot of dogs who had moved to the city from potentially more rural areas. There were some dogs who had just had unpleasant city-based experiences. And one of the things that I did as a service professional was tailor everything that I did to match the behavioral needs of the dog. If you had a dog that needed to go outside just very quickly to the curb, go potty and zip right back inside. We don't want to go for a walk mm -hmm. at all. I could do that. And it was a diversion or it was a divergence from the um, more, the more traditional New York city model of I'm taking your dog for a 30 minute walk and yeah. I'm going to be out walking your dog for 30 minutes, regardless of what happens. Uh, mm -hmm. I never liked that model and I didn't feel like it was adaptable to a lot of different behavioral situations and so I really enjoyed being able to provide a service that was more tailored to the specific needs of the dog um, and the client, as opposed to having this kind of blanket, we're just going to do it this way type of model. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I walked dogs briefly, I walked dogs briefly, two English bulldogs for like six months, I don't know, 10, 10 years ago or so. And um, like right when we were starting school for the dogs and uh, they wanted the dogs to go out two hours a day. Mm -hmm. uh, Tw twice for an hour each time and like the, it was like summertime and like these english bulldogs could not oh my god outside <laughs> so i would end up i would end up like standing basically on the corner yeah. with these dogs are like going and sitting on a stoop with these dogs and uh i ended up i guess it was kind of like a i quit your fired situation just because <laughs> like the owners were like why are you just sitting sitting on a curb with our dogs and i was like because it's what's right for the dog. It's, yeah, and it's it, it's so interesting that you say that because that was something that I realized very quickly after I started my business that I needed to make clear to clients was if your dog is telling me that this is not a walk that's going to work out for them right now, I'm not going to force them to walk. I just yeah. won't do it. I'm not going to be the dog walker who's dragging your dog around the block. That doesn't yeah. work for me yeah. and it doesn't make your dog happy. What I would rather do yeah is it looks like your dog needs to go potty. Okay, cool. We'll take them outside. They'll have their potty break. And then with the other 20 minutes, I'm going to bring your dog inside and we're going to play fetch for 20 minutes. Yeah. And your dog is going to get so excited and he's going to have such a great time. And we're going to play a bunch of fetch. And then we're going to do a little massage. And then I'm going to crate him with his delicious bully stick. And then we're going to be done for the day. And yeah. it made a, 
a lot of difference explaining to my clients why we were making mm -hmm. the choices that we were making. Um, and it was very interesting because it actually did translate into my future training experience. This was the first experience that I really began to have with common techniques for managing urban anxiety. So some of the really common techniques that we use on leash walking, like engage, disengage, or the look at that, or the eye contact healing, all of those techniques that we use a lot when we're working with dogs who have some difficulty walking in New York City were techniques that I started to figure out when I had my business. And then I joined School for the Dogs and realized that they're fantastic techniques that pretty much everybody who has a dog in an urban environment should be familiar with. Yeah. So you, you came to us to do the apprenticeship, I think. Uh, I actually originally came into the School for the Dogs Second Street location because I wanted to give you my business cards for my business. <laughs> And then, and then I found out about the approach and then, right. Yeah. It was all, all over from there. Um, but when you, but you came thinking that you were going to bring your training knowledge to your walking business to be a better walker. And then we were like, no, you need to bring your walking business to school for the dog. So <laughs> that's right. So in, uh, was it 2018? The end of 2018? Or like the middle of 2018? I don't remember exactly. Um, I think it was the middle of 2018. Yeah, it was. I, I remember it was 2018 because I remember we yeah. were we were going to have a meeting about and then my dad died like that day. Yeah. And I was like, must must reschedule. Yeah. Um, so that was 20, middle of a 2018. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. And then I think by that summer, we. The school for the dogs bought Lower East Beast. Um, yeah. And that was a pretty incredible experience. Um by buying Lower we East Beast, they also bought me. Um, <laughs> so I got to come along with the company and I got to help with the transition um, into School for the Dogs walking program, which is currently on hiatus. Um, I know. And it's, it's, it is on hiatus. Uh, but I still have hope that we can reboot it. Yeah. I do too. I mean, for for anyone who's listening to this who doesn't know about our, our on-pause walking business, I feel like we were like offering like the best dog walking in New York City and it wasn't cheap. <laughs> we were it was like the I'm, first people. This is that, maybe like self interesting, but I will argue that we absolutely were offering the best dog walking services in New York City. Yeah. We were offering one of yeah. the only personally tailored dog walking programs in any yeah. state or country that I've ever lived in. And Yeah. And people would balk at the price and I would be like, look, I'm, I'm happy to recommend places that like will charge you much, much less. But like we charge what we charge because we offer an amazing service. And, right. and uh, in order to offer that service, like we need to um, pay people who are like interested in being professional dog walkers because and that was, like it's such a. Yeah, that was one of the challenges of the service was that the walkers that we had were so skilled and are so skilled um, that the whole goal was for them to switch into something that was more intense than dog walking. <laughs> so that was right. what happened to, I think almost every single walker that we had was that they ended up becoming trainers and they basically graduated right. out of the walking program. <laughs> um, right. Right. So I guess it still does make for kind of like transient uh, staff, but it, compared to your average dog like uh, 
dog walking has never in my lifetime been something that anybody thinks about as like a career. It's like something you do while you're trying to. Which is honestly, after having lived in New York City for five years, I would argue Mm -hmm. that dog walking should be a career. Because I would absolutely be willing to hire a professional dog walker who has a certification in leash walking manners or who has a certification in urban anxiety Uh or who has a certification Uh in leash reactivity or any of these various skills. Funny, funny story. When I was um, like when I was writing for the New York Times, um, this was like a while ago now, like maybe, I don't know, 15 or something years ago, I wrote an article about... um, uh, it was about like how you could like rent this place where you could like sort of rent pets, like rent hamsters and gerbils and stuff. Oh yeah, uh, and uh, which I actually think is kind of a good idea. <laughs> but I talked to the plan. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Your dad had a plan to oh, my, start. That. My dad had yeah no. My dad had the idea for what he called dog share, like twenty years ago. Yes, which yes. is exactly what has become a thing. Like he had. You know, I, I own the URL. I have a New York, I own the URL, New York dog, nydogshare.com. Nice. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I interviewed this little boy for this like story on like, I think it was called like, we called it like part-time pets, uh, Upper East Side, like super wealthy, fancy family. And he was like six years old and obsessed with animals. And he said to me, um, I said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, a dog walker. And, um, his mother was so mortified. Mm-hmm. She, um, she like hounded me, like begging me to like not put that put that in the article, and actually like called the New York Times and got my editor on the phone, and which like never happens. Like, <laughs> and like made the editor promise that they weren't going to put in the New York Times that her son yeah. wanted to grow up to be a dog walker. I guess because she was worried it would like hurt his chances of getting into an Ivy League. This is so wild because when I pivoted from being a vet tech to owning my own business and to being a dog walker, essentially, I began with just clients from the vet practice that I had been working mm-hmm. at. I was offering my services to them saying, hey, I'm thinking of starting a business. I'm thinking of doing walking. You know, let me know if you need some help. And I essentially ended up, this was one of the wildest things about it. And I, this was after living in New York for only a year or so. Um, But I ended up realizing that as a dog walker, I was more or less a personal assistant to the dog. And Uh, I was able to communicate things that the clients hadn't even noticed or didn't really have any frame of reference for I was the first line of defense for things like hey it seems you know her poops aren't normal have you noticed that or she didn't seem as excited to come out of her crate today as she normally is is she not eating very well lately is she not feeling well in other ways or oh mm-hmm. man we had an amazing success on a walk today she normally barks and goes crazy when she sees a skateboard but instead of barking and going crazy she looked back to me and so I gave her a treat and we just went around the corner and everything was great it was a Aww. fantastic way to realize that, as it, and this is why I, I say that I think the dog walker should be a skilled profession, is because it was a great way to see that you're making a huge difference, not just in the life of the dog, but in the life of the client. Mm-hmm. And you're pretty much their way of, for these, you know, it's New York City. People are busy. Sometimes it's difficult to keep track of all the things that you need to keep track of in New York City. And if you have a skilled person who's able to help you with the management of your dog, three times a day when they're taking your dog out for a walk, 
that's fantastic. And that's going to go a heck of a lot further than if you have a dog walker on board who doesn't really care that much about what they're doing. And they're just kind of taking your dog out to go pee and then bringing them back inside. Right. And when you think about like services like WAG and, uh, or whatever, where like they're like the Uber for dog walkers, basically, um, it's terrifying to think that like here you have like the most valuable thing in your life and you're, you're letting, and like having someone come into your home and it's, yeah, it's, I understand the motivation behind utilizing services like Wagger Rover. I absolutely understand the motivation and I understand that there are circumstances under which that is an appropriate service to use. And I also, I used to work for Rover. I know that there are many, many really responsible and qualified professionals who work for these services. But the only thing that I would say is if you know that your dog is going to need a walk three times a day at these particular set points, and it's not like an Uber because it's not suddenly I found myself in need of a dog walk with five minutes notice. It's I know that this needs to happen three times a day no matter what. That's the circumstance under which you need to be putting as much thought into it as you would putting into uh, attention for a nanny or for a house cleaner or for anybody else that you're going to bring to your home on a regular basis and have interacting with living beings that are important to you. Um, so that's that's my standpoint. On it. I think that services like Wagon Rover have a, a wonderful place in the world, but I do not agree with relying on them as a first line of defense for dog walking and dog care. Yeah. Maybe it's like, like you're saying, it sort of could be like a marketplace to find someone that you can then work with. Yeah, exactly. So you do not have a dog right now. I have a cat. I have a cat named Wesley. Her nickname is Wes. She also goes by Wesley or Fuzzy Wesley. Um, and she is 13 years old. I've had her since she was about six months. I rescued her from Seattle Animal Shelter. Uh, they said that she was a stray. I'm pretty sure that she was just a cat that got out of somebody's house because she was uncommonly friendly for a stray. Um, she is beautiful. She's a tortoiseshell and she's the light of my life. And I want to hang out with her all the time, no matter what. Uh, but yes, uh, she's my cat friend. Now, I know she's not, you know, the, she, she's not um, the most trainable of all cats. From, from things you've told me before, but you have done some training with her. We right. have. And that, yes, um, the interesting thing about Wes is that for cats, when it comes to training cats, uh, food motivation is the biggest ticket to being able to train a cat well. If you have a food motivated cat, you are very likely to have a highly trainable cat. If you have a cat who's not very food motivated, what's that? I think that's the reason, one reason why cats can be harder to train than dogs is yeah. that. Uh, they also have a, they're quicker to satiate on food. So mm -hmm. whereas with a dog, you might be able to use 30 food reinforcers in a given session for a cat, you're probably going to use three to five and then you're going to be tapped out. Mm -hmm. um, and then you've got cats like Wes who really, Wes is not, she will not eat treats. She will not eat people food. I'm a big fan of using people food in training of any animal. This kitty believes that people food is some sort of trick that I'm trying to play on her. I can <laughs> offer her platter with like bacon and smoked salmon and cat food. And she'll be like, those two things are garbage. I just want the cat food. Um, <laughs> so she can be a bit challenging as far as reinforcement. But what does work for reinforcement for Wes is attention and physical touch. Okay. So one of the things that I was able to train her for was a hand target. So for dogs, as we know, we typically train the hand target with either a flat palm or two fingers. 
-hmm. So we'll have dogs come up and touch their nose to our two fingers or our flat palm. For my cat, it's a fist. So I hold out my fist and she comes and bumps her head on it. Mm -hmm. uh, it basically just looks like the kind of thing that you would see for any given cat of like, oh, of course they're going to rub their head on this thing. It's interesting. But I've proofed it with Wes to the point where I can use it as a recall cue. Mm -hmm. So if she, there's been a couple of times, she's a very adventurous cat. She likes to try to bust out of the apartment when I leave the door open. Um, and there've been a couple of times when she has busted out and she decides that she's going to go through a little hallway party. And <laughs> my technique is always keep it very low key. And then I will give her the little sound, which indicates that she should look back at me. Once mm -hmm. she gives me her eye contact, I hold my fist out and she will come running down the hallway and bump her head on my fist. That's awesome. So that is her little recall cue. And once she's done that, I give her some nice big back rubs to reinforce her for that awesome behavior. And then I scoop her up because she doesn't mind being carried. She actually likes to be held and carried. I make sure that I give her that reinforcement before I pick her up, though, because I don't want to just grab her and make her feel uncomfortable with being picked up. And then once I've got her, then I can imprison her once more in the confines of my apartment. <laughs> well, you also, um, and you, you told me a little bit about um, like an emergency vet visit you had recently, right? Ah, yes, yes. So um, Wes is a very healthy cat. She's, like I said, she's 13, um, but she's always been very healthy. As a former vet tech, I'm paranoid about things. So a few weeks ago, she started vomiting and I wasn't sure why. And that's very unusual for her. So I ended up taking her to the vet hospital that I have, the local vet hospital, um, which if it's all right to name drop, this is Buckman Veterinary Clinic um, in Portland, Oregon. They're absolutely fantastic and I would recommend them to anybody. They're a fear-free practice. Um, they're a cat-specific practice, not a cat-specific practice, but a, um, they're certified in cat handling. I can't remember the terminology, but they're, they're wonderful. Everything about them is great. Um, so I took her over there. The only issue with Wes is she is one of those cats who really can't tolerate crating or being put into a carrier. Uh, I didn't do a good job of carrier training with her when she was little. And so she's really averse to being put into a carrier. But what she does know is leash training. Um, I have leash trained her because I think that it's cool to walk a cat on a leash. And I think it's cool to be able to take a cat outside without worrying that they're going to get run over. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so she knows her harness. She really likes to go out for walks. So she, if I present her harness, usually she will come up to the harness and tell me that she's excited to get dressed and go out for a walk. Mm -hmm. So she wasn't feeling well. And I brought out the harness and said, hey, buddy, do you want to wear the harness? And she let me put it on. So we got her all dressed. Um, I, because I was nervous about taking her to the clinic for the first time, what I ended up doing was putting her in the carrier with the top of it completely open with mm -hmm. her on her leash harness so she could peek out. She didn't, she wasn't closed in at all. And I brought her over and the tech said, oh, well, we're not really sure that we can, you know, do the leash and harness thing. It's, you know, we, we don't really find that it works that well with cats. And I said, okay, that's fine. If you need to use the carrier, that's all right. That's why I brought her in the carrier, but she does walk pretty well on the leash and harness. So I think she'll probably prefer it if, if you stick to that, if that's okay with you. So then I go back home and I wait impatiently for news. Turns out she's completely fine. It was her kibble wasn't uh, wasn't good, and so she was getting sick off of that. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, it was just old kibble. It was it was a pet parent mistake. Um, <laughs> and so then they said, "All right, she's doing great. You can come and pick her up." And first of all, when I 
spoke with them over the phone because of course all of this is contactless. Uh, when I spoke with them over the phone, the DVM said, you have the best cat in the world. It's the best cat. She said, I've never seen a cat who's so chill. Aww. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons for this is because I socialized Wes the way that I would socialize a dog. So I did not make accommodations for the fact that she was a cat. I just said, she's a young animal. She needs socialization. She needs to have experiences that result in good stuff. And that's what we're going to focus on. So I would have people over. I would let them pet her. I would let them touch her. I would make sure that they were playing with her, with her pole toy, which is her favorite thing. I would make sure that they were giving her food. I would make sure that they were relaxing on the couch and letting her get onto their lap if she wanted to and not trying to grab her or, touch, or manhandle her in any weird way. I would leave the windows open so that she could hear the sounds of downtown Seattle. I would drive with her. I would put her in the front seat of the car and go for a drive around the block so that she got used to being in the car. So pretty much what I was trying to do is make it so that she had as many experiences as she possibly could that were associated with good stuff and that were not scary. And yeah. what that led to was a 13-year-old cat who, when I went to go pick her up, the technician walked her on leash up the stairs of the hospital. And I got to watch her stop by the front desk and give the receptionist a little like, like cheek bump and little check-in. And then she came out on her leash I picked her up, gave her a huge snuggle, of course, because that's her favorite thing. And then I became the crazy Portland person who walks their cat home. On a leash. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, um, yeah, she is now. She has a note in her file apparently there now that says "walks on leash does not need to be crated." That's really cool. And I mean, I think that's just something a lot of people wouldn't even think to teach their cat to do in case of having to go to a vet. Yeah, um, exactly. It's certainly. It's, and it's. The my as as a converted cat person, so I never cared for cats when I was younger. Of course, I was obsessed with dogs and didn't care for cats at all. Um, but as a result of living with my cat for 12 years, I have realized that a lot of the same work that we do with dogs can be done with cats. It's all about figuring out what your pet wants, what they need, and making sure that what they do to get what they want is something that you want to see from them. So when I set up Wes's environments, I go, well, I know that she needs to scratch on things. I know that she needs to sharpen her claws a lot. What do I know about claw sharpening? Well, I know that for cats, it's a social behavior. So I want to make sure that I've got a scratching post right next to the door so that she can sharpen her claws on something appropriate right when I come in. And then I want to make sure that I've got another scratcher that's right next to the couch so that before she jumps up onto the couch, she'll do her little greeting sharpen on that scratching pad. And then she'll jump up onto the couch and she won't feel the need to sharpen her claws on the couch. Hmm. That's pretty smart. I try to set up my entire apartment so that it's maximally accessible for cool stuff for my cat. <laughs> Do you feed her with work to eat toys? I, so she, uh, my cat is not a fan of work to eat toys. She will, because she only eats wet food. It's also a little bit tough for work to eat toys for cat wet food. Um, but what she will do is I'll sometimes put her bowl out and I'll cover it with something like a dish towel or a piece of paper or something like that. And she'll dig around it to try to knock the dish towel or the paper off of it. And then she scores her meal that way. She likes that. And one of the other cats so, uh, I've worked with now, two or three other cats that I've trained uh, that belong to my friends. And one of my friend's cats is such a nerd for training. He is so food motivated that they feed him all of his meals and work to eat toys, just oh, like we cool. recommend for 
only eats out of Orta Toys. Uh, he actually has the green grass feeder. Love that one. Um, as one of his. And then he also has the, um, it's not the twist and treat, but it's a similar one. It's like a purple treat ball that mm -hmm. he knocks around his kibble out. So he has the grass feeder in the morning and the kibble ball in the evening. <laughs> well, I have to go relieve my babysitter or uh, my daughter's going to have a fit. Um, okay. She he also sometimes work, eats out of work to eat toys, I got to tell you. Nice. <laughs> With cheerio. I like to think of ordering <laughs> delivery as a work to eat toy. Yeah, it's kind of true. <laughs> um, but it was really great to just have this time to talk to you. Um, and uh, I think we should I think we should do it again soon. Next time we yeah. won't have to go through your entire life history first, I promise. <laughs> It's okay. I love, I'm super narcissistic. So I love talking about my entire life. Oh, you're not narcissistic. You're perfect. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. You can support School for the Dogs podcast by subscribing, leaving a five-star review, telling your friends, and shopping in our online store. Learn more about School for the Dogs and sign up for lots of free training resources on our website, schoolforthedogs.com.